But the end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be serious and watchful in your prayers. And above all things, have fervent love for one another. For love will cover a multitude of sins. Be hospitable to one another without grumbling. As each one has received a gift, minister it to one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. If anyone speaks, let him speak as the oracles of God. If anyone ministers, let him do it as with the ability which God supplies, that in all things God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom belong the glory and the dominion forever and ever. Amen. So for the past few months, we've been engaged in this study of 1 Peter, and we've been focused on the, the strangeness that Peter expects us to possess throughout this letter. And, and during this time, during the study, we, we've noticed how, how Peter expects us to have a, a strange identity and how he expects us to, to uh, have a strange citizenship or, or a strange employment or a strange home life how he expects the way we treat others to be strange, how he expects the way we think to be strange, and how he expects the confidence we possess to be strange. But we really can't talk about being strange without talking about our behavior. Our behavior is supposed to be strange. Reminded of a story I heard about a man who was driving home from work one day, Traffic was horrible, and he got stuck behind a little old lady at a red light. And when that light turned green, she failed to move. And it irritated him greatly, and he began honking his horn. He began shouting in his car and waving his hands around wildly. The next thing he knows, there's a tap on his window, and there's a police officer standing there holding his gun, pointing it at him. He gets out of the car, and the police officer puts handcuffs on him, escorts him to the back of his patrol car, and puts him in the back seat. All the while, the man is saying, you can't arrest me for honking my horn and screaming. And after a while, the police officer came and got him out of the back of the car, took the handcuffs off, and said, you're free to go. And the man said, I told you you couldn't arrest me for screaming and honking. And the police officer said, I didn't arrest you for screaming and honking. I saw your behavior and noticed the crucifix hanging from your rearview mirror, the fish uh, emblem on the back of your trunk, and the decal for your church. And I thought maybe you had stolen the car. <laughs> now that's funny, but it's also quite humiliating. Because I, I, I bet there's a, a lot of us that are here today who have had a similar, not exact, experience where the world has called us out for behavior that was inconsistent with the confession that we made. And yet the world is really, really good at spotting hypocrisy. Have you ever noticed that? The world is experts at spotting hypocrisy. When they see behavior that is inconsistent with the claims of Christianity, they're going to point the finger because they know that our behavior is supposed to be strange even if we don't realize it. This morning, we turn our attention to 1 Peter chapter 4, and we focus on verses 7 through 11 today as we investigate this strange standard of behavior that Peter is calling us to. And I want to begin with this. I want to begin by noting why Peter says our behavior should be strange. 
the purpose of this, or, or, or the, the basis of this strange behavior. And the first thing I want to call your attention to is a statement he makes in verse 7, at the very start of verse 7, because Peter indicates that the Christian's behavior should be strange because the end of all things is at hand. You see that phrase right there at the beginning of verse 7. Now, why would he begin talking about behavior by talking about the end of time, about the second coming, about the day of judgment? It's because the impending return of Christ and the subsequent judgment, that should shape our behavior. Awareness that Christ will return, anticipation of that return, and an understanding that upon that return, judgment will come. That should impact the way we behave. And maybe Peter, as he's writing these words, he's reflecting on teaching that Jesus gave him when he was a disciple. If you go back to Matthew chapter 24 and 25, you'll see that Jesus spends a lot of time discussing with the apostles, of which Peter was one, discussing with them the end. Now, in, in Matthew chapter 24, and I believe it's verse 36, Jesus makes it clear that no one knows the day or the hour of his return. And because of that, he launches into a series of parables and teachings that emphasize the necessity of being prepared and watchful for that day. So if you look at Matthew chapter 24, and you look at verse 42, Jesus gives this instruction. He says that they should stay awake, for you do not know on what day your Lord is coming. And, and he follows that instruction with an illustration of a man who is protecting his home. He says in verses 43 and 44, if the master of the house had known in what part of the night the thief was coming, he would have stayed awake and he would have not let his house be broken into. Therefore, you also must be ready for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. So Jesus, right there, he, he gives an illustration saying, you need to be in a constant state of preparation because you don't know when the return will be. He then goes into a little parable that sometimes referred to as the parable of the faithful and wise steward. It's in verses 45 through 51 of Matthew chapter 24. And it's a parable about a servant whose master returns unexpectedly after empowering that servant with the authority over his household for a period of time. And the parable contrasts two options the servant has while the master is gone. He can be a wise servant if he faithfully fulfills his responsibilities in anticipation of the master's return, or he can be an unwise and wicked servant by abusing his authority and indulging in the benefits of his power, but as a result being unprepared for the master's return. And Jesus told this parable in the context of being ready, in the context of his own return. And so there seems to be an analogy between the master's return in the parable and Christ's own return to this earth. And the point Jesus is making is that his return will be unexpected, therefore his disciples should live in a constant state of preparation, a constant state of faithfulness, just like the wise servant here. And then you can skip over to Matthew chapter 25. All this is in the same context. All this is in the same course of teaching. And in Matthew chapter 25, in the first 13 verses, we have the parable of the ten virgins. And in that parable, you have ten women who are waiting to participate in the festivities associated with a wedding. However, the festivities would not begin until the groom arrived, and he was running late. Now, some of the women ended up missing out on the festivities because their, their lamps ran out of oil. They were not prepared for the absence or the delay 
of the groom. The other women were prepared, and they brought extra oil just in case. And when that delay occurred, the women who had to go out and buy extra oil to light their lamps again, they missed the groom's arrival, and as a result, missed the celebration. And just like in the previous parable, the return or the, the, the groom's arrival appears to be analogous to Christ's return. And the point is the same, that we should be prepared at any time for Christ to come back. In, in fact, in Matthew 25 and verse 13, Jesus specifically concluded this parable by saying, Watch therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour. And he was in, indicating the necessi necessity of his followers to constantly be ready for his return. Now, I mention all these parables in this context because Peter was there hearing these parables not too long before Jesus' own death. I I'm certain this concept of preparation stayed on Peter's mind because that night that Jesus is arrested, Peter wasn't really prepared, and it showed. It showed when he denied Jesus those three times. And maybe as Peter is writing instructions about behavior, about conduct, about the way we present ourselves to the world and the way we act, he's reminded that the way we behave and the way we act needs to be influenced by the end because we must always be in a state prepared for the end. Peter would write about this again in his second letter. If you go to 2 Peter chapter 3 and look at verses 10 through 12, and look at what Peter says there. He writes this, 2 Peter chapter 3, beginning in verse 10. The day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done in it will be exposed. Now look at verse 11 and 12 of 2 Peter chapter 3. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, in other words, since the end is coming, what sort of people ought you to be? In lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming day of the Lord. Peter's saying, hey, the end is coming, so you know what? You need to be ready. You need to be prepared. You need to anticipate it. You need to live in a constant state of readiness because you don't know when it's going to come. But you do know what's expected of you when it does come. And so Peter begins these instructions about a strange standard of behavior by saying that it, we ought to be strange because we know the end is near. And so we need to live strange all the time. So I want to begin with a question today. I know it's not really the beginning, but as a good segue. I want to begin with this. Right now, are you prepared for the end? You see, in the first century, Christians believed Jesus was coming back that day. They lived in this constant state of readiness because they always thought Jesus was returning. They didn't expect 2,000 plus years to go by. They expected Jesus to return that night or the next day. And they lived in that constant state of readiness. That's why Paul could claim in the book of Philippians when his life is on the line that he's ready, that it's going to be far better. Because Paul understood that Jesus could come back at any time. Are you ready? Are you prepared? Are you living in a state of readiness? Because we don't know when he will return. 
He could return before I finished this sermon. And some of you are thinking, yeah, you preach long enough. He could return before you get home today. He could return before sunrise tomorrow. We don't know. So are we ready for that return? And our readiness will be evident in our behavior. So that's one reason we should have a strange behavior, but there is another reason he gives. And you have to skip down to verse 11 of 1 Peter chapter 4 to notice that. If you go down to 1 Peter chapter 4 and verse 11, you'll see an emphasis on giving glory to God. And that's because a Christian's behavior should be strange because our goal is to bring glory to God. Notice in particular in context, after Peter gives some of these uh, practical instructions that we'll talk about in just a minute, he gets to the point in saying that the reason that we are to be strange, that our behavior to be, is to be strange, he gets to the, and he says that the purpose is so that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. What Peter is saying is that our ultimate objective is to behave in such a way that results in God receiving glory. Now, do you remember how we began this strange study? We began by looking at our strange concept of identity back in 1 Peter chapter 2 and verses 11 and 12. And that's where we're called aliens and strangers. And in that passage of 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 11 and 12, Peter said that he urges us as aliens and strangers in the world to abstain from sinful desires, which wage war against your soul, and to live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse us of doing wrong, they may see our good deeds and glorify God. In other words, what Peter was saying in that passage and what he's saying now in 1 Peter chapter 4 is that our behavior is to be so strange that it causes the world, it causes unbelievers, it causes pagans to take a look and potentially in time give glory to God themselves. Our behavior is supposed to deflect attention away from us and onto Him. Peter is consistently reminding us that life's ultimate purpose is to bring glory to God. You see, God created us not so that He could magnify and glorify us, but so that we could magnify and glorify Him. You go back to Isaiah chapter 43 and verse 7. God said that everyone who is called by my name was created for my glory. That's why we were created, was for his glory. And then David called for everyone to magnify the Lord with him and to let us exalt his name together. And then you can go back to Paul's writings in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 31 where Paul instructed the Corinthian church to do all to the glory of God. And when Paul meant, said all, he meant all. Do everything for the glory of God. And we know that because in the verse that immediately precedes that instruction to do all to the glory of God, Paul had said, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, the most mundane aspects of life are still supposed to produce glory to God. Now, I don't know how eating necessarily produces glory to God in all situations. But Peter's saying, no matter what you're doing, there's a way in which you need to bring glory to God. In context, there is a reason eating is mentioned here, for the record, but I'm not going into that today. The point is this, that everything we do is meant to magnify God. Now, what does it mean to magnify something? According to one dictionary, it means to cause to seem greater or more important. In other words, when you magnify something, you are making it greater than yourself. Now let's get specific. How do we magnify, or what does it mean to magnify God? 
Magnifying God means making him bigger. Now, don't get me wrong. God is big. We can't make him bigger. He doesn't need our help to be big. But, we magni- but saying that we magnify him means that we intentionally do what is necessary to make him stand out in our lives. That's what we're talking about when we say we are here to magnify and to glorify him. It's us making him stand out in our lives for the world to see. And this is important because we can choose to operate like a microscope or to operate like a telescope. Let me explain what I mean. What does a microscope do? A microscope microscope makes something that is incredibly small appear big to the observer without causing the observer to feel smaller. Think about that for a moment. When you're in high school and you're in your uh, biology classes or whatever it is and you have to use that microscope, you're looking at things that your, your eye alone can't see and the microscope is making those tiny objects seem so much bigger. But all the while, you still feel quite large compared to them. We can operate with God that way. We can have a microscope mentality when it comes to God. And what that means is that we can try to make God appear big without making ourselves appear smaller. But that doesn't work that well. See, God wants a telescope mentality out of us. If you've ever used a telescope, you know that a telescope operates a little bit differently than a microscope. They both magnify objects, but the way that a telescope works is it observes something that is small because it is distant and makes that object that is really quite large more observable to you, but it simultaneously and unintentionally makes you feel quite small. When you're staring through a telescope at a a planet or a star or some object out in the galaxy or the universe, you realize that by comparison, you're really insignificant compared to that because of just how far away it is and how big it really is. And a telescope causes you to magnify what seems small but is actually big while simultaneously causing you to be miniaturized. See, the the idea here is that we need to have a telescope mentality about God. That everything we do, everything we say, every thought we have, every attitude we possess, everything is about magnifying Him and minimizing us. That's the mindset presented by John the Baptist when he said in John chapter 3 and verse 30 that he must increase and I must decrease. That's an understanding that our goal in life is not to make much of ourselves but to make much of Him. And we do that by bringing glory to Him. So second question of the day. Is the way you're living your life, the activities you're engaged in, the behaviors you, you demonstrate, who's it bringing glory to? Does it bring glory to yourself Does it bring glory to some institution? Does it bring glory to some other person? Or does it bring glory to 
God. Because your life's objective is not to bring glory to anyone but God. When John said that he must increase and I must decrease, he understood his position. He understood that his mission was to point people toward Jesus. And John understood that a time would come for him to take a back seat. And you and I have to come to that same realization because our behavior is strange because our goal is to bring glory to God. That's how Peter starts, this se- or starts and ends this section. The reason our behavior is strange is because we understand that the end is near. And the reason our behavior is strange is because we understand that our life's goal is to bring glory to God. Now, Peter gets specific. Now, Peter gives some practical application of strange behavior. And I want us to spend some time looking at three things that he identifies as behavior that is strange to the world. First, Peter indicates that the Christian's behavior is strange to the world because it is controlled. Now think about this for a moment. Peter is calling on us to be different than the world. And the first way he indicates we're to be different is to be self-controlled and sober-minded, according to verse 7. Be self-controlled and sober-minded. Now, this is not the first time Peter provided this type of instruction. Back in 1 Peter chapter 1, and verse 13, he instructed his, his readers to prepare their minds for action and to be sober-minded. This isn't the last time he's going to talk about this either. You can go to 1 Peter chapter 5 and go down to verse 8 in a passage that is quite familiar where he says, Be sober-minded, be watchful, your adversary the devil prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. And you can go to a second letter, and you can go to 2 Peter chapter 1, and you can go to verse 6, where he identifies self-control as one of those traits, one of those attributes that must be added to faith in order for faith to not be ineffective or unfruitful. So self-control and sobriety are emphasized by Peter. And that emphasis is not accidental. See, Peter is instructing believers to be controlled both in mind and in body, and his emphasis, he's emphasizing this because the world doesn't understand such control. You go back to 1 Peter chapter 4 and verse 3, and, and you'll see how Peter talks about the behavior of the world. He says that the world be, behaves indulgence, behaves with indulgence. The world cares more about chasing its human passions and indulging its human passions. And that's why if you look at 1 Peter chapter 4 and verse 3, he says this is what the world does. This is the activities that they're engaged in. It's all about their sexuality and all about their drunkenness. And he says that's, that's not what you're supposed to do. You're supposed to prioritize the will of God. And that means practicing control. And what Peter is essentially doing is calling on us to be meek. Now, last year we did a study of the Beatitudes, and we talked about what it means to be meek, and I'm going to highlight some things that came from that lesson. Now, for us, meekness is associated with timidity. That's what meekness is today, but in the first century that was not the case. In the first century, meekness meant power under control. 
And I want you to notice something Jesus said in Matthew chapter 11, particularly verses 28 through 30. And it's a passage that's familiar to us. I'm going to read it from the King James Version because the King James Version is the only translation that keeps the word meek in place. Jesus said, Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly in heart, and ye shall find rest unto your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Now you notice that Jesus referred to himself as meek, but Jesus was not timid. And you'll also notice that Jesus instructs his readers there, his audience there, the disciples, to take upon his yoke. And that's a fascinating analogy in the context of meekness. See, the Greek word from which we get the term meek was used in the days of Jesus to refer to the taming of an animal. When an animal was brought under the control of its master, it was meek. And so here Jesus uses the illustration of a yoke to signal the idea of meekness. Jesus is in effect saying, take my yoke, let, let, let me break your willful spirit, let me tame your rebellious heart, let me teach you how to walk with God holding the reins. So meekness is not referring to a person who is weak or spineless. It's referring to a person who has yielded his or her strength to the control of God. So meekness is the result of a deliberate decision to release the will, to, to, to abandon the throne, to hand over the reins, to let go and let God. And maybe Peter provides this emphasis on control because he struggled with it so much. Think back to G Peter's life during the ministry of Jesus. And, and you can see that control was always his biggest issue. His failed water walk. His scolding of Jesus for saying that he was going to die. His sword fight in the garden. And even his denial of his discipleship. All of those events were all evidences of his failure to let God be in control of his failure to be meek. And so Peter's point here, as he starts giving some practical implications of what behavior that is strange is, his first thing is you've got to be controlled. You've got to be controlled by God specifically. Because the world operates out of control. The world chases its passions. The world indulges in whatever it wants, but not so with you. If you're going to be strange in this world, you've got to be brought under control, both in mind and in body. Self-control and sobriety. And so the first practical advice that, G, that Peter gives in regard to behavior is that our behavior is strange because it is controlled. But then he goes on to talk about love. And in so doing, he indicates that the Christian's behavior is strange because it is compassionate. So look at verse 8 and 9 of 1 Peter chapter 4. Peter says, Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins, and show hospitality to one another without grumbling. It's likely no surprise to any of us that Peter emphasized love because he was present during the Last Supper, when, when after Jesus washed the disciples' feet, Jesus said, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another as I have loved you. 
and by this all people will know that you are my disciples. Peter was there when Jesus indicated that the identifying mark of a Christian would be love. So, so here, as, as he gives instructions for a strange standard of behavior, he is sure to include Christ's standard for uniquely Christian behavior, which is love. But how does love identify us as disciples? I mean, the world puts a great emphasis on love. I mean, the Beatles saying that all you need is love. So if the world understands the importance of love, how do we distinguish our love from the world? Well, first it has to start with the right standard. When Jesus said, love one another as I have loved you, he upped the bar. Think about the golden rule for a moment. The golden rule says that we are to treat one another as we want to be treated. That's a pretty good standard. Treat others like you want to be treated. But Jesus says, no, 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 no. Here's the new standard. You love others the way I loved you. Not the way you want to be loved, the way that I loved you. That's a new standard for love. Because how did Jesus love us? Sacrificially? Unconditionally? Completely? And he's saying, you love the way I loved you. And Peter gives a couple of, of examples of how that would manifest itself. He talks about forbearance. Now, he doesn't use that word in the text, but he uses this phrase that you likely saw. He, re, he, he, he talks about how love covers a multitude of sins. And when I use the word forbearance, forbearance refers to refraining from the enforcement of something that is due. In other words, it means not retaliating when wrong. And forbearance is not a worldly trait. The world prefers the law of retribution. The world prefers eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, life for a life. So a love that turns the other cheek will be unique. And that's what Peter's calling for. That phrase, love covers a multitude of sins, it, it, that's, that's here in 1 Peter chapter 4 and verse 8, it comes from Proverbs chapter 10 and verse 12 which specifically says, hatred stirs up strife, but love covers all offenses. In that passage, Solomon contrasted love with hate, and in so doing, he contrasted the covering of offenses with stirring up strife. So it seems that Solomon's use of the terminology was meant to suggest that love results in a forbearance that does not let wrongs done come to their fullest expression. In other words, love overlooks offenses by turning the other cheek, by not retaliating, by not stirring up strife. So Peter's not making a theological statement about sins being forgiven by God here, and he's not saying that sin in the church should be ignored or denied here. Instead, Peter is saying that love covers sins by not responding in kind to destructive behavior. This is best understood in light of what he said throughout this letter. Back in chapter 2 and verse 1, Peter instructs us to put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and slander. In chapter 3 and verse 9, he instructs us to not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, to bless. So we can demonstrate our unique standard of love through forbearance, through our ability to turn the other cheek, through our willingness to turn the other cheek. 
But we can also demonstrate our love through hospitality. You notice that in verse 9 where he mentions hospitality? To be hospitable is to be friendly and welcoming to strangers. And it's not a trait that's admired in this world. The world tends to be suspicious of strangers. The world operates on a a dog-eat-dog principle, that you're out there on your own. you got to do it yourself. So a love that is receptive of and kind to strangers will be unique, and that's what Peter's calling for. And Peter's not alone in this. Hospitality may be more important than you realize, because throughout Scripture, it is frequently extolled as a Christian attribute and held up as an expectation of the Lord for those that are his followers. I want you to notice very quickly with me how much hospitality gets mentioned. It's one of the traits that distinguish the blessed sheep from the punished goats in the parable of the sheep and the goats, Matthew chapter 25. In in other words, the goats who receive a blessing, who are welcomed into the kingdom, they're the ones who saw Jesus as a stranger and welcomed him. And the goats who were dismissed to punishment saw him and did not welcome him. Hospitality is a distinguishing trait of those who will receive salvation and those who won't. Hospitality is also a qualification of an elder, according to 1 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 2 and Titus chapter 1 verse 8. It's also a credential for a widow to be, a fi- to be financially supported by the church, according to 1 Timothy chapter 5 and verse 10. And so you have these, these individuals within the church who to either be in a leadership position or to be funded by the congregation must demonstrate hospitality. That alone should show you just how important this trait is and might be one of the least talked about qualifications of elders. In Romans chapter 12 and verse 13, Paul admonished believers at Rome to show hospitality much like Peter does here. And in one of the more intriguing passages in all of Scripture, the author of Hebrews instructed his readers to not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels. In Hebrews chapter 13, verse 2. And then you can get to 3 John, this short little letter where John condemned the lack of hospitality shown by a guy named Diotrephes because the Diotrephes was refusing to welcome the brothers and he was stopping those who wanted to welcome the brothers. And after calling this behavior out, John said, do not imitate evil, but imitate good. Do not imitate Diotrephes. Do not imitate his lack of hospitality. Imitate hospitality. See, hospitality was a major characteristic throughout Scripture, and it's another way we can demonstrate our unique standard of love. So here, Peter, when he calls on us to love, he says, here's a couple of ways that it will be unique and it will stand out from the world. If you practice forbearance and if you show hospitality, you will show a love that is different, that is strange, that is not ordinary. Peter has one more practical advice, and I know I'm going a little long. Look at 1 Peter chapter 4 and look down there at verses 10 and 11. Because he's going to talk about service. And from this we'll see that the Christian's behavior is strange because it is charitable. To be charitable is to be generous and benevolent toward others. And typically when we think of charity, we think of monetary gifts. But being charitable is not limited to that. We can be charitable with our time. With, we can be charitable with our energy. And as Peter will talk about in verses 10 and 11, we can be charitable with our gifts. Look at 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 10 and 11. As each has received a gift, 
gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks is one who speaks oracles of God. Whoever serves is one who serves by the strength of, that God supplies in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. A few observations about this passage. Peter first indicates that every member of the body of Christ has been equipped with a gift. Now, it should be noted that Peter indicates such gifts are not necessarily miraculous, since he specifically identifies the natural abilities of speaking and serving. And Paul does the same thing in Romans chapter 12 when he identifies gifts such as teaching and encouragement and giving and leading. And the point is that everyone has something to offer. Everyone is equipped in some fashion. It may be a special ability, a unique talent, an area of expertise, or a personality trait, but everyone has something to bring to the table in the body of Christ. Not only does Peter indicate that every member of the body has been equipped, but he also indicates that the purpose of our gifts is to serve one another. The focus of Peter's comments about gifts is not on the gifts, but on the purpose of those gifts. Peter indicates that, that talents, skills, abilities, traits, and all other resources that God has given us are to be used for the benefit of one another. And Paul says the same thing in Romans chapter 12. See, the purpose is what's important. The purpose is that we serve one another with what we have, that we help one another out, that we function for the benefit of one another. Because we're all in this together. We're all members of one body. Members of one another. And therefore, we're to serve one another with the gifts that we have. And the final thing I want you to notice here is that Peter indicates we are to be good stewards of these gifts that God has given us. Failure to contribute our talent, skills, resources, and whatever it is, failure to contribute those things to the work of the kingdom is tantamount to failed stewardship. You notice that emphasis he placed on as good stewards of God's varied grace. That's how we're to serve one another. It reminds me of the parable of the talents in which the master gave each of the talents a certain amount of resources, and each one received resources according to, uh, according to his ability. So they, they weren't equal in the, uh, the resources they had, but they were equal in the expectation that was given them. They used these for the benefit of the kingdom. And you remember how the five-talent guy went out and got five more talents, the, the two-talent guy went out and got two more, but the one-talent guy went and hid his. He didn't use it. He buried it. It benefited no one, not even the master. And when the master returned, he was critical and condemnatory of that one-talent servant because he buried it and didn't use it. He called him wicked and lazy. And the point is that God does not intend for us to be selfish with our resources. One of the ways we are going to behave strangely is through our benevolent activity. But understand that I'm not specifically or primarily talking about giving away money. Our charitable activity is going to be most visible when it involves the use of our gifts our talents, our abilities, our skill sets. And the world can see that we're strange when we're not selfish with what we have. So here in 1 Peter chapter 4, Peter tells us, hey, here's how you can be strange. Be strange by loving people uniquely. Be strange by using what you have for the benefit of others. And be strange by being controlled both in body and mind. Because guess what? 
we're here to represent him. We're here that through us, God can be seen in this world. And so we're to be imitators of him. And our imitation of Christ should impact the decisions we make, the thoughts we possess, the words we say, the attitudes we demonstrate, the relationships we form, the places we go, the activities in which we are involved, because we're here to represent him. I want to conclude with a poem that I may have shared before, but I could not find it in my records that I had. It's a poem called The Gospel According to You. The Gospels of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are read by more than a few. But the one that is most read and commented on is the Gospel according to you. You are writing a Gospel, a chapter each day, by the things that you do and the words that you say. Men read what you write, whether faithless or true. Say, what is the Gospel according to you? Do men read his truth and his love in your life? Or has yours been too full of malice and strife? Does your life speak of evil or does it ring true? Say what is the gospel according to you. See, our behavior has an impact because it's either going to be evidently strange or not. The world can tell the difference. Can it tell the difference in your life? Does the world see that you're strange? Or does the world think you're just like it? If you're not strange today, we invite you to become strange by confessing your faith in Jesus Christ as the risen Son of God, by repenting of your sins, and by being immersed in water for the forgiveness of those sins. If you need to make any changes in your life, if you need to repent of anything, if you need to seek the prayers and the help of this congregation, if you want to learn more about this strange life, we invite you to come while together we stand and sing. Why from the sunshine of
wonderful lesson this morning. Uh, I want to thank everybody for being here, uh, members as well as visitors. Visitors, if you're here, you're our uh, special guest, and we hope that you'll stick around afterwards and let us get to know you. Uh, 